You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to open in your Bibles this afternoon to Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, through chapter 12, verse 9. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law, Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to, came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years. He died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh in Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called in the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Now we'll turn further in the Old Testament to the prophecies of Micah. Micah chapter 7, beginning at verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, which lives by itself in a forest in fertile pasture lands. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days long ago. As in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will lay their hands on their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. Our text this afternoon is the word of God as it's summarized and confessed in the Heidelberg Catechism. In Lord's Day 6, the last question and answer. Lord's Day 6 is, of course, the Lord's Day that teaches us about the mediator 
the mediator that is true and righteous man and at the same time true God. That is, question and answer 18 says, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And then question and answer 19 is as follows. From where do you know this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise. Later, he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it fulfilled through his only son. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, this afternoon, we'll consider what it means when, as the Lord Jesus himself said to those men who were on the road to Emmaus, all scriptures point to me. That before he was even revealed in the flesh on this earth, the Son of God made flesh, he was in fact revealed through the scriptures in history, already at the very beginning. So this afternoon we'll try to cover broad terms, the the sweep of that history, and notice some of the particular characteristics about this revelation of the mediator. It's not as though God simply gave these little tidbits about the coming of his son, but, but as he reveals who this mediator will be, he actually also reveals us Uh, reveals to us ourselves. He teaches us who we are. And he teaches us who he is. Because that's exactly the role of a mediator, isn't it? It's a go-between. Someone who goes between us and God. And so it's important that we would understand both sides. And so this afternoon, I proclaim God's word to you under this theme, The Mediator Revealed. Revealed in paradise and revealed to the patriarchs, that is to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Revealed on the peninsula. That's the Sinai Peninsula, in case you were wondering where in the world that was. The Sinai Peninsula in the law, that is, and by the prophets. So first of all, the mediator revealed in paradise. As I said, this is, this is revelation of God in His Word. And it's a historical revelation, so of course this means this is a real paradise. The real Adam and Eve, the real first parents of all humanity, in whom is found our original state. God's word is very clear on that. We go back to Adam and Eve and we stop there. We stop in that good, original creation of Adam and Eve. When God made Adam and Eve and breathed life into them, They were good, righteous, and holy. Adam and Eve, those of no parentage, Luke tells us in his genealogy, except for God. So when Adam was formed from the dust of the ground and Eve from Adam's rib, they were perfect. They were perfect. That's the original state of of all humanity, drawing their lineage back to Adam and Eve, made perfect. From the very beginning of their lives, they were holy, righteous, and 
good. But we know the story, don't we? We know that in the Garden of Eden, first Eve was tempted and sinned. Then Adam was tempted and sinned and thereby they fell. And we've been reaping the consequences ever since. Yes, this is the well-known story of the creation of Adam and Eve, but let's sort of sit there because it's very important to get this. Let's sit there and dwell on this and reflect on this for a little bit. Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. That is, they were relational beings in perfect relationship with each other and even more importantly, in perfect relationship with God. See, we have the capacity for relationship because we too are made in the image of God, but their capacity for this was so much higher than ours. They had a capacity for perfect communion, perfect fellowship. We don't have that capacity in our present state anymore. We have the potential because of God's blessing, God's power, but we don't experience perfect communion because there's always sin that still clings to us. But consider the highest expression of communion and of fellowship that you've experienced. What do you think is the human relationship or the human experience which speaks of the highest communion, fellowship, closeness, relationship possible? Perhaps it's that exclusive intimacy of a healthy and happy marriage. It's exclusive. It's only between two people. Perhaps that's where you get this this communion and fellowship most. Perhaps it's in the bond of true friendship. True friendship forged through experiences, shared experiences, and and just that right mix in a in a, a very wonderful and blessed relationship, just that right mix of, of difference and, and similarity between great friends. Or perhaps you might say it's that, it's that absolute dependence of a very young child, perhaps an infant, who, who rests entirely and without question in the nurture and the love of their parents. Adam and Eve knew nothing except far beyond even these, the highest expressions and experiences of closeness. And they shared it not only with each other, but they shared it with God. They shared it with the almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, the God who created them. They shared it with him. But in that moment of disobedience, in that one act of godless desire, they lost it. The consequences started crashing in around them immediately. I'll ask you to remember another experience in your lives. Have you ever felt that crashing, crushing experience of consequence? We like to think that we can just 
sail through life and do the things that we want to do without any consequences coming from our actions. And sometimes they do, and you feel it. You feel it right in your stomach. And it hurts. I can still remember the feeling in my stomach when I got my first speeding ticket. As a young man, I thought I was a great driver. I thought I didn't need to drive as slow as everyone else on the road. I thought I could push the limits. I was flying along to work one morning in the summer, my summertime job. And then I saw those lights in my rearview mirror and I heard that siren. And immediately this feeling in my stomach, the consequences of my actions. I felt like an idiot immediately. I didn't feel like an idiot before that. Felt great. I was flying to work. But immediately when I saw those lights and felt those consequences, I felt like an idiot. I felt ashamed. I felt guilty. I knew I was guilty. You've probably felt that same feeling at some point or another in your lives. A ticket is really a minor thing. What about a car accident? What if you were driving recklessly before that car accident? Or what about other worse experiences to even bring them up would be too painful? And yet we must understand that that sense of shame, that sense of consequence coming, we must understand that. We can understand that. And so we can understand in a small part what Adam and Eve experienced when they fell into sin. That shame's immediately evident in the account of the fall. When Adam and Eve hide from God, they know. They know. And this is what shame causes you to do. It, it causes you to hide. It makes you want to crawl up into a little ball and, and go away where no one can see you. Because you, you feel low. You feel dirty. You feel sinful. Adam and Eve are the first parents of all humanity. Adam and Eve are the first parents of all those who feel shame and who feel guilt and who have felt the pain of consequences coming in their lives. And brothers and sisters, it was to these, our first parents, Adam and Eve, that the one who had been sinned against the perfect and holy God came. They hid from Him and He came to them. He sought them out in their shame. He sought them out in their guilt. They wanted to run from Him, but He would not let them. Yes, He would speak words of curse to them. Yes, they would experience the consequences for their sin, the consequences that we are still feeling in this broken Difficult, painful world. But the reality is, the gracious and beautiful reality is, is that God spoke to them. God came to them and he spoke to them. God said to them, when you eat from that tree, you're going to die. They had no promise that when they ate from that tree, God would come to them and speak to them. But he did. God came to them, and rather than wiping the slate clean, wiping humanity off the face of the earth, 
finishing the job with them. He came to them in his mercy and his grace and he sought them out and he spoke to them. And even before he spoke a word of curse to them, he promised them the gospel. Perhaps you want to turn to Genesis 3 just so you can you can get this. You can see this. If you go to Genesis 3, right at the beginning of your Bibles, you go to verse 9, when the Lord God came to Adam and Eve, and all he asked at first are questions, where are you? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? What is this you have done? He speaks no word of curse yet to the man and the woman. Instead, he turns to the serpent and he delivers his curse to them. And in the last words, he says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He, that is the offspring of the woman, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The what's been called the proto-evangelion, the first statement of the gospel. The fall into sin has happened. Not a word of curse has been spoken to the man or woman before God reveals his gracious plan to all who are guilty and shamed. Notice what Adam and Eve would have heard as God spoke to the serpent. They would have heard, He's not going to destroy us. He's not going to destroy us. But rather, he's going to destroy the devil. He's going to destroy evil. And in fact, not only is he not going to destroy us, but destroy him, he's going to save us because he just promised a savior from our children. These words were life for Adam and Eve. They were words of hope and comfort. They would suffer under the curse, yes. They had subjected the world to God's curse, yes. They would struggle against sin and evil, yes. But through their seed, God would crush the power of evil and wash away the guilt of sin. This is what God would do. This is how in paradise God reveals our Savior, the mediator. The one to go between guilty and shamed humanity and God, the mediator, Jesus Christ. So we move now from paradise to the patriarchs. The gospel comes to those who were whose original state, tracing back to Adam and Eve, was of good and righteous and holy, but who fell into sin. That's all of us. But what about those who are hopelessly lost in sin? We'll move along in the account of God's word. We'll go through Cain and Abel and the flood and the covenant with Noah and the table of nations and the tower of Babel. All those things also speak to us of the Savior Jesus Christ. We'll go through the line of Noah's son Shem all the way to Abraham. And we'll consider that when we get to Abraham, we're coming to a man who worshipped idols. We read in Joshua 24, verse 2. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. So this is God's revelation of his mediator to people who worship other gods. You know what it means to be an idol worshiper? Someone who worships idols? 
It means that you're a living, breathing human being after the fall. That's what it means to be an idol worshiper, because we all do it. This is the sinful human condition. Whether that idol is of our own humanity, we worship ourselves, or we worship a God of our making, and of course we we should realize that it, it doesn't mean that everyone makes little figurines of stone or wood and worships them. No, we're talking about uh, idols, anything we worship apart from God. In our culture, we make idols of many different things. We make idols of, of personal rights and freedoms. We make an idol of sexual license. We worship that. We think that's the highest thing. Business people make idols of money, and artists make idols of expressions, and academics make idols of notoriety, and ministers make idols of acceptance. High school girls serve popularity, and high school guys worship desire, and so on. We serve idols. It's what we do. So what does God do with idol worshipers? But those who, as Paul says in Romans 1, exchange the truth of God for a lie, worships and serve created things rather than the creator. What does God do with those who are living apart from him, worshiping not him? Well, God reveals what he does in Genesis chapter 12 when he comes to that idol-worshiping man, Abram comes to him in his perfect sovereignty and holiness. He comes to him in his grace and calls him. He calls him. He promises to bless him. He makes a covenant with him, a covenant that will last forever. Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and Go to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. This is how God acts according to his mercy and his grace to idol worshipers, to some of them upon whom he has set his affection according to his own good pleasure. He calls them to be his own. He just calls them right out of where they are serving other gods. And he says, you are going to be mine. You are going to worship me. He establishes a covenant with them, a covenant in which he promises to bless them and a covenant in which he promises to bring his divine plan of salvation through them. As first he calls Abraham, says, I'm going to bless you. And at the end, he says, I'm going to all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through you. How's that going to happen? Well, we know as Scripture progresses, it's going to happen through the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Through the seed of Abraham, as Galatians 3 speaks about. It's going to happen through Jesus Christ. So God called an idol idol worshiper when he called Abraham. So there's hope for idol worshippers. God reestablished his covenant with Abraham's son, Isaac, Isaac, if you read the account, you notice that Isaac makes all kinds of the same mistakes as Abraham makes. It's Some of the accounts are almost uh, very similar to things that have happened to Abraham. So the point is clear. Abraham was, a, was an idol worshiper at first. After God called him, he lied to Pharaoh, said his wife was his sister. He didn't always trust in God. And it's the same thing for Isaac. And then God reestablished his covenant again with Jacob. 
Jacob was that soft mama's boy who connived and cheated his way through the first half of his life, stealing birthright from his brother, cheating the blessing out of his brother again later on, cheating his father in order to get that, before he ended up marrying two wives and having children with two other women in his household as well. This was the man that God reestablish his covenant with. And in fact, God would make Jacob, he'd rename him Israel because God would make him into a great nation. Jacob's family would become famous for his sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Wow, these men must have been amazing. Not really. Jacob's family was a bit of a mess. He had sons who murdered a whole town in revenge. He had a son who slept with his father's concubine. He had another son who slept with his, his son's wife. And the whole lot of them plotted to kill their brother, but don't worry, they didn't actually kill him. They only sold him into, sold him into slavery, had him shipped off to Egypt. So what's the point of all this? Well, it's twofold. As God reveals himself working with his people, he's showing his faithfulness to his covenant and his grace towards sinners. As God is making his covenant, not with the most righteous people who are walking on the face of the earth at all times. God is making his covenant with sinful people, weak, idol worshiping, cheating, lying, adulterous, idolatrous people. People like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's making that covenant... He's promising to bring salvation and blessing to the world through them. He's going to bring salvation through them. The second part of the message is that he's bringing salvation for them. He's bringing salvation for them. He's showing us In Scripture, as he reveals this mediator, he's showing us the very ones for whom this Savior is going to come. The sinful, duplicitous, weak, and faltering people. And where do these two things come together? They come together in the sovereign plan of God, working out in the covenant of grace in order to save fragile and weak people, sinful people, in the arrival of of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham. Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. But we're not at Christ yet. We'll move ahead to the time of the law. So we travel past the time of Jacob after he died in Egypt. We travel through the time of Moses and the ten plagues beyond the great escape from Egypt through the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula to the giving of the law at Sinai. So let's put ourselves there. This is years after they they were in Egypt for 430 years. So they've they've grown. They've been blessed. They're a great multitude at this time. And they've, they've just experienced this great deliverance out of Egypt. Life had become very hard for them in Egypt. They had been, they had been under Pharaoh's oppression. They'd been slaves there. God has delivered them in all these great and miraculous, with all these great and miraculous signs in the ten plagues. He's brought them through the Red Sea. He's made, he's allowed them to see Pharaoh and his armies drown in the Red Sea behind him in this great victory. 
And they've gone into the desert where God miraculously sustained them with manna and quails. And they've received water from a rock. Wow. These people have seen a lot. They have seen the power of God. They have seen the hand of God at work in in leading them out. Surely they must know that they are a very blessed people. And that they would respond in, in worship and awe of God, right? Well, at times they did. But overall, no, they didn't. They grumbled when they got hungry. They despaired at threats to the people. They questioned God in hardship. Even Moses, their great leader, he, he vacillated between good leadership at times and, and anger at others and despair at other times. Perhaps you see some of these traits. You, you recognize people who grumble when they get hungry and question God and hardship and despair at threats. It's pretty clear from the narrative uh, that God's people then were pretty similar to what God's people are like now. And it was to these people, people like us, that God gave the law. These were people needing guidance and direction because they, they didn't have the capacity for going in the right direction themselves. They, they didn't just know what was right. God had to tell them what was right. And so the law was a teacher instructing the people in what was right and what was wrong so they could walk in the right way. Well, this was this was great for the people, of course, and to know what was right so that they could walk in it. That was great. But but what would happen when they realized now that they had this perfect standard of God, how much wrong they did? And that's exactly what happened. The law came, it told them what was right and what was wrong, and so often they said, okay, let's do that. So what would happen when, when they realized how much wrong they had done? Well, God in his law, in that same law that told them right from wrong, he said, when you do wrong, this is what you do. You offer sacrifices, and I'll forgive you for your sins. But what about their propensity to forget God? Because it's fine to know what's right and what's wrong and what to do when you do wrong. But what if you forget the whole thing altogether? Well, that's why God and his law created that yearly cycle of ceremonies in order to teach the people to remember, remember, remember in the Passover. Remember that God led you out of Egypt and and saved you through the blood of the Passover lamb in the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember how God brought you through the promised land and gave you everything you needed there or brought you through the wilderness, sorry, and gave you everything you need. The Feast of Weeks, Passover. Remember that everything good that you receive comes from God. And God said, you got to celebrate these festivals year after year after year after year so you don't forget because you're prone to forget. Because we're like that. But who would do this for the people? Who, who, Who would mediate on their behalf? Well, God gave them the ministry of the priests and the sacrifices that the priests would offer. So when God gave his law to the people, he he wasn't simply laying out for them what was right and wrong. God was was pointing them beyond his law to himself. That's what God wanted to teach his people through his law. He wanted to teach them about himself and the, the mercy and the grace that he has, even as he is a holy and righteous God. And the love that he has for his people. And the forgiveness that he grants. And the thankfulness that he delights in. But in all of those aspects of the law, there was this this strong sense that it was just temporary. 
Because it was never quite enough, was it? Each Passover lamb that was sacrificed each year, it it called for a final lamb, a, a lamb that was perfectly without blemish, that could redeem God's people, just like those lambs had done when they spread the, the blood on the doorposts before the angel came in Egypt and killed all the firstborn in the households of Egypt. And every high priest that lived and then died called for a high priest who would come and live and then live forever. And every sin offering that was offered and the atonement that was given, it was real atonement and it was a real sin offering. But every time it was done, it called for another one because no sooner had they had they made the offering and they started to pile up the sins again. It called for a final sacrifice. This then was the point of the law. Yes, to point them to God and to teach them about who he was, but also to point them ahead. To point them ahead to a mediator, a go-between, like the sacrifices, like the high priest, like the ceremonies. Who would fulfill them all for them. One final one. To fulfill them all for the people. So that they could forever and eternally rest in what God had done for them. They all pointed ahead to the mediator, Jesus Christ. But we're not there yet, because at the time God gave the law, there's still 1,500 years of history, ten times the age of Canada, in which God is going to work with his people. And during this time, parts of this time, he communicated through his prophets. And so we come finally to the prophets. There's much more history, of course. There's the history of the judges and the kings, the great King David and the covenant that God made with David, promising that he would have a son who would sit on his throne forever. Of course, that's speaking about the great mediator, Jesus Christ, but quite simply, we don't have time for that today. And so we move along to to the whole period of the kings during the united monarchy and the divided monarchy, the united kingdom and the divided kingdom, when the prophets spoke. Now, when some people speak about, think about prophets today, they think about someone who, who has this special ability to see the future and they can tell the things that are going on then and they're going to tell us today what's going on. And some prophets did just that. The prophet Daniel, for example, had all these visions about things that would happen in the future and then after this happened, then this is going to happen and after that happens, that's going to happen. But the main task of the prophets was in fact not that that foreseeing, but rather the main task of the prophets was to take God's word and to apply it to the people. What the prophets did more than going ahead was go back they would go back to the beginning. They'd go back to the law. Go back to the books of Moses. Go back to God's grace that he had expressed and the law that he had given. And they would remind the people of that. What often happened as the prophets would go back to the word of God, they would see that the word of God for sinful, unrepentant, and rebelling people means judgment and wrath. And so the prophets would often speak about the judgment and wrath that stood against God's people and, and how terrible the, the judgment to come for them was going to be. If you've read the prophets, if you've read through Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or the minor prophets, then you know that quite often these prophets are speaking about judgment. 
They're bringing God's word to bear on God's people. God's people were frequently rebellious and sinful. So they would tell them the judgment to come. But if we go all the way back to the beginning, and we remember that promise that God gave to Adam and Eve, and the covenant that he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and with all Israel, then you'll realize that if the only thing the prophets gave to God's people was was warning and prophecies of doom and gloom and judgment, then, then something would be wrong, wouldn't it? Because that first word that God spoke before God gave the curse was a word of hope. In a word of promise. And that's why it's not all warning as the prophets give. Yes, they lay that warning on God's people thick. They lay it on, on heavy. They don't mince words. They don't spare imagery as they speak about the judgment that's coming. But there are these beautiful passages that come, shine like lights on a, on a cloudy and dark and gloomy day that speak about someone who's going to come and bring the redemption promise so long ago to Adam and Eve and to, and to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So that when the prophet Micah writes of the compassion of God and that God will forgive the sins of the people, as we read together, he was in fact speaking of the same person that the other prophets were speaking about. The, the servant, for example, that Isaiah foretold, a servant who would die for the people in order to redeem them in God's faithfulness to God's promise. The prophets repeatedly spoke about it, and actually in the time of the prophets it becomes more clear that, that this is going to be one person. And they speak of, of different aspects of his work that he will come and he's going to preach good news to the poor. He's going to give sight to the blind. He's going to heal those who are sick. He's going to die for the sins of God's people. He's going to rise to life again after that. With the prophets, we get this more focused view in these passages which speak to the promise given already at the very beginning. And in fact, the warnings that the prophets gave were intended for the very same purposes as those promises of grace. They were given to reveal the good news. They were given so that God's people would repent, so that they would not, they would not count themselves, uh, so that they would, they would repent of their sins and they would recognize their need for a savior. The warnings were given to reveal the good news that God in His time would send His Son, born of a woman, to redeem God's people and to bring eternal, unending glory to His own name. That's what God has done. That's what God has done through Jesus Christ, our Mediator and Savior. That's what God is continuing to do. That's what God's Word reveals to us in the Gospel. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.